0: This is an ABC Podcast.
1: This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Baraschetti on ABC Radio WA.
2: Well, hello there. Hope you're well this Tuesday afternoon. Hope it's all going well as best it can at your place at your place a few. Farmers obviously having a few challenges, a few residents still having a few challenges. As you can imagine, you've heard the news, you've seen the photos in the wake of TC Saroja. So hopefully you're getting that work, those jobs sorted if you're in that situation. It is five past twelve here on the Country Hour. Before the news at one today, off to Muche for the results of the sheep market. And numbers were down mainly due to all the road closures in the wake of XTC Seroja. 3,000 withdrawals um, from the sale today at Mushae. So I wonder what impact that's had on the prices. John Testro will go through that. That's quite a few numbers down on what was expected. And as you know, uh, it is difficult to get your hands on sheep if you need them. The processes, it's challenging. There's a lot of sheep still going east. So... Checking the uh, full yarding and the prices just before the news at 1. Shortly off to the north of the state, off to the Kimberley, the Ord irrigation scheme, just to check on the cotton crop. It was planted, well, going back a few months now, so it's sort of coming up, it's established and it is looking pretty good by the sounds of things. You'll learn more about that shortly. First, though, in the darkness, as tropical cyclone Saroja crossed the state on Sunday night, it was impossible to predict just how much damage it was causing on farms in the firing line on WA's Midwest coast. But in the light of day, the next morning, it was crystal clear. There were trees flattened. Power lines and fences down, roofs just peeled off the sheds, and silos built to withstand strong winds simply lifted up and dumped on their sides in a tangled mess of metal. Now that's what Daniel Corrick can see as he looks across his farm at Alanooka, about 40 minutes southeast of Geraldton.
3: When the eye passed straight over the top of us at about quarter to ten. Sunday night, we then, yeah, sort of then realised that there's going to be some sort of damage. It was just a matter of how much.
4: And so it's been just over 24 hours since um, you've been able to get out and about and assess the damage. What what are things looking like?
3: So yesterday morning, yeah, obviously first thing out we went, um, had a look. It's not good. I think it's not as bad as what we're hearing from, say, Northampton and Calbarry, but certainly... Lots of infrastructure damage. I think structurally most of our sheds are fine, but there's tin everywhere. Probably the worst casualty for us was five big thousand tonne silos, which were all empty at the time. Well, one had a little bit in it, but they're all gone, which we were surprised because we didn't think they'd go. They're rated for high winds in America. Obviously not cyclonic winds, but so they're all gone. Trees down everywhere. it's, It's just crazy. I don't think there's a single gum tree that hasn't had something lost of it, and power lines down everywhere. I lost count of how many power lines we've got down around the place. Even just fence fence lines that have been covered in mud from the bloody wind, wind and rain, have gone over. So that was the main focus yesterday. Once the you know had a quick look through everything, take a couple of photos, and then yeah, started securing paddocks that had sheep in them, or in a couple of cases, shifting sheep into a secure paddock and getting hay to them and yeah see where we go from there you know we did lose the roof off one house that's unoccupied at the moment so you know we will have to try and do something there but looking at at the neighbors everyone's yeah in our path everything's sort of similar but again seedings seating's on the doorstep and i think a lot of the cleanup's going to have to wait until yeah who knows when
4: you mentioned some of those, those paddocks um, and I understand you've had uh, up to 70 millimetres of rain, so has there sort of been a little bit of erosion there as well, Dan?
3: Not too bad. There's one couple of little hollows where it has run down that I haven't really seen before, but in saying that, we had one bad pasture paddock from the wind last year, last May, that was really bad that's actually levelled that out a bit, so... I suppose there's a silver lining in, in there somewhere. But I don't think we had the dust, the sand move, but just the mud, like the stubble is up against the fences and then just the mud from the wind and rain. Was, yeah, that's what's pushed the fences over.
4: Now, you've been busy getting ready for seeding. Does that mean that you're now going to have to push the, the seeding plans back a little while you get some of that, <laughs> that essential infrastructure <laughs> up and running, like the, the generator so you can use your phone? <laughs>
3: look i think the plan will be is just to secure what needs to be secured um, make sure the sheep are all good make sure you know just start clearing driveways so we can access access farms and that especially the canola paddocks or what's pegged for canola will tidy up any anything in them tin trees the odd sheep feeder and try and get them in this week if we can and then i think a lot of a lot of the cleanups going to have to wait until later. I mean, it's just yesterday was like, where do we start? But I think we'll just start with there and then try and get the canola in, see if we can catch a breath and go from there.
4: Yeah, you you mentioned that, you know, you, it has been over 24 hours now and you sort of didn't know where to start. Now that you've had that little bit of time, does it kind of feel like the task isn't quite as as insurmountable? You've, you've got a way forward, you know where you're going?
3: Still have a lot to do. Nothing. Another another man or two on the ground wouldn't wouldn't sort of help a long way. Sure, but like I say, we'll just tidy up where we need to tidy up to start with to make make things a bit safer and make things accessible. I mean, until the Western Power come out and lift some lines, there's one farm we can't even get into. Certainly with machinery, with the power lines over the main road. But I think they will get them off pretty quick. Put some road cones out on the road so make sure no one else come flying along and uh, yeah, finding them in a hurry. But there's still a lot, lot to do, just tidying driveways, power lines, you know, not, well, not that we can do anything with them, but it's, yeah, it's just going to take time, I think, and with no phone service still, it's, yeah, hard to keep everyone organised.
4: It's going to be a big old busy bee, I think, when uh, when you finally do finish seating,
5: Dan.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's um, end of seating, I'm not even thinking about the end of seating at the moment, more trying to, yeah, get everything in place to organise and organised two starts eating, which we're all behind the eight ball, anyways. And then, yeah, throw this in the mix. And I don't think there's a spanner big enough that's been thrown in. So, but we'll get there. Yeah, no, there's just a lot to do.
2: There sure is. In fact, I saw some of the photos that Daniel Corrick took around his farm at Alanuka, just southeast of Geraldton. Uh, Daniel catching up with Tara DeLandgraft there. And some of the photos just. Incredible. Um, As I was mentioning and Daniel was just telling you about the trees flattened and the power lines and fences down, uh, roofs off and those silos too, just like a crumpled mess of metal on his place. But he sounds pretty cool and calm, I think, and he's not going to let that all get in the way of getting the seating program underway by the sounds of things. 13 past 12, this is the Country Hour on ABCWA. You can be part of it too on the text zero double four It's been really challenging trying to get in touch with you, so many of you, with the um, communication system down. So if you do have some connectivity today, text through... And share what's happening at your place. If you've been caught up in this situation too, zero double four eight nine double two six zero four fourteen past twelve. Well, my, many farmers just along that Midwest coast, like Daniel, are heading into day two of cleaning up the mess left behind by TC Siraja others away from the coast are busy getting stuck right into their seeding programs the rain has been fairly widespread throughout the state's grain growing regions and while some you know may have wished for a little bit more overall it's just a great start to the season with his take on the situation his Meriden-based agronomist David Kimmy
6: well yeah we've uh, we've got rain obviously uh, some people are a little more disappointed or or some are more happy than others but Basically, it was north and south of the cyclone path.
4: What are you hearing in in terms of rainfall? As you say, some farmers will be happy and some might might be a little bit disappointed.
6: North seems all around that 20 to 30 mils and south uh, gets down as low as 6 or 7, but mostly around that 10 to 12. But the path that the um, Bureau put out was pretty right and... It crossed about Bedellin, so um, yeah, south not so happy, north very happy.
4: We've been hearing rainfall reports of, well, right across, uh, I think there was sort of over, almost 50 millimetres up near Mullawar, then coming across sort of Ben Cubbon around that 30 mil and, and Maka copped a, a nice little drop as well, though a bit of damage too, I hear some farmers out there um, cleaning up afterwards, I, I understand.
6: Yeah, there's a couple of roofs of uh, fairly important places, like uh, hotel, was damaged, and uh, a, a few other places. But um, yeah, it was it, it was a very good rain, and, and probably followed basically the the line of the uh, summer rain that we had uh, earlier.
4: So you talk about that, that summer rain uh, for, for those who were south of the highway and, as you said, sort of have picked up 10 mil or less. I mean, was was there enough moisture there for them to say, well, maybe this 10 mil will be all, all right in terms of a starting, starting rainfall?
6: Only just because the bright side of not getting the rain is, I suppose, they can go and start burning again in two days and it'll freshen up some more weeds to spray. But there's a fairly big gap in the moisture profile of the heavy country, whereas some of the lighter land, yeah, it's, it's probably OK, but it'll still, it'll still end up a staggered germination where that lesser rainfall was.
4: So are you expecting to, to see some farmers out on, on tractors, on air seeders today then, Dave? Uh,
6: absolutely, yeah. yeah. A few would have started um, yesterday afternoon or you know, last night to, to give it a go on some lighter country, and um, I think the majority will be on to today, or at least by tonight, anyway.
4: We're not yet in mid-April, so, I mean, do you think farmers will be pretty happy with, with the timing of this this rainfall in terms of their program?
6: Oh, absolutely, yeah. There's, well, there's been a bit of canola, some vetch, obviously a lot of um, feed oats, a bit of sardella and stuff going. So, um, yeah, that'll all be up now and away. Uh, any of the feed paddocks, well, they turn green overnight, really. So yeah, the capeweed's weeds uh, back up and the grass is standing up, and uh, all looks pretty well, really.
4: And as you say, a little bit of spraying to do potentially as well. Well, spraying and burning, yeah.
6: Um, I suppose it was predicted, but a lot of people, because of the um, the prediction, if you like, from uh, Bomb, didn't want to go seeding because you know we've had two big winds last two years, and they didn't want uh, that to happen again, obviously.
4: So you think for for Morris this is a, a pretty darn good start to the season?
6: A very good start, yeah. But, you know, it's just hard to predict the intensity of the, of the cyclone once it hits land. So hence the, uh, well, it's like trying to get a room full of farmers to agree on the same CBH director. It's, you know, it's basically impossible and that's why we get some are disappointed and some are very happy, but uh, the majority will be exceptionally happy. But still a long way to go and just the start.
2: Uh, Meriden Rural Supplies agronomist David Keamey with Tara de Landgraft. 18 past 12. And uh, Dave just mentioning the CBH group there. And I'm curious to know what's going on at the Geraldton port because obviously in preparation for uh, TC Saroja, the port closed on Saturday. The power is still out in Geraldton. And as you know, after listening to The Country Hour over... Well, last week in particular, the state's main grain handler, the CBH group, is already behind schedule with the shipping stem. It's fully booked. And the backlog of ships uh, was the conversation we were having last week. In one case there at Geraldton, sort of 20 days now um, has been the length of time it's taking to turn those ships around, which usually take around four days. So this, um, well, you'd think, would be adding... To those sort of problems. The CBH groups have said that the main reason for the delays up until the cyclone was the fact that it's difficult to get truck drivers and train drivers and really slowing that process of getting grain to port. So the calls have been put into CBH. I'm just waiting for that response to come through. And as soon as it does, we'll let you know the outcome of that, just to know uh, what the situation is at Geraldton. Is it delaying those shipments even further and how much longer is that going to take to turn those ships around? If we do get that response before the news at one, we'll let you know. This is the Country Hour, 19 past 12 on the ABC right across Western Australia. Uh, you are off to Varley now, which is about five hours east of Perth, and you're calling into Annalisa Newman's mixed farming business. Now, she was hoping that TC saroja would deliver a little extra rain uh, just to get some runoff to fill up the dams. But having said that, she's really not complaining.
7: We've been watching this forecast for over a week, and um, I think we got excited hearing maybe over forty, you know, forty mil predictions. But we've come in at twenty, about twenty-six to twenty-eight mils across our farms up here. And look, that's uh, we should really be happy with that. I guess we were just seeing the opportunity for some big rains to fill up dams. But um, just to get this amount of rain now is still.
0: Absolutely fantastic. April is traditional seeding time for a lot of farms in certain types of crops. What does it mean for you in that respect?
7: Yeah, it just it's going to give us um, a really good start in regards to not having to think about our chemical management going into um, programs without getting a germination. So we'll, we'll get a nice germination now. We already had a good germination back in early March, um, which we've already had one knock on. So we'll be probably knocking the first lot that goes in um, which means you know killing out um, the weeds that come up now and then by the time we get to the back end of our seeding program we'll probably be fortunate to get two kills on some of those weeds so it's just going to be a really good opportunity to to get a really good outcome for setting up crops for the season.
0: What sort of a difference does rain in April make?
7: Oh, Rain in April, we're a mixed enterprise so it just takes the pressure off our livestock side of things. We've got pastures that got going on some of that March rainfall and they're really going to jump now because the temperatures are still nice and warm, the soil temperatures are warm so we'll get some great growth in um, some of our pastures and some of the crops that you establish now can really get some good biomass on them so we play a careful game obviously with frost risk where we are um, but that the spring risk of of dry temperatures the back end of the season um, is a real issue for us so getting crops in now and established and growing four weeks sort of ahead of where we have been having to struggle with for the last few years um, it's going to be very positive.
0: Yeah well how, how have the past few years been around this time of the year?
7: Yeah, I just i actually look back at some of our records and um, this is the first year since 2015 that we've had average March and April rainfall. So this has been, yeah, so it's been five or six years since we've had an average both March and April. So it, it's just going to give us um, a much, much more pleasant experience. Hopefully if we can not see it dry out, gear can get in paddocks easily or not dry sowing, And like I say, yeah, getting stock where they need to go without doing any other Heavy management is going to make it a lot more smooth.
0: Just to sort of circle back a second, I mean, um, you got twenty six to twenty eight mills across the farms. If you're looking out the window right now, how does it look? I mean, how how wet is it?
7: Look, it was a lovely steady event yesterday. It wasn't, and most of our rainfall didn't come from that cyclone event. Come in from that that southern event that pushed up late yesterday and it just came in as a nice steady drizzle so whilst there was water running during it um it hasn't you know done too much damage we haven't been able to get out and fully assess things are a bit wet yeah now 13 year old has been out in his motorbike and got himself bogged already but
0: when was the last time you got bogged on a motorbike
7: <laughs> yes yes that is a very good question yeah not for some time i think just this rain on top of some good rains in early March I was only digging down the other day and that that moisture was about 15 to 20 centimetres under Um, so this is going to be just join that all up quite nicely.
0: When I spoke to you in February you were in drought effectively you said that you had um, more dams dry than you'd ever had dry before you were carting water and things were getting pretty tight water-wise so how are you going now compared with then?
7: Important to keep it in context we got a good event in early March, well above our average March event, but that really only gave us probably two to three metres in dams. So it stopped our water truck immediately, which was great, um, took the pressure off in, in that short term. And I think after yesterday's event, we're we'll probably going to look at another couple of metres, So, but we would still be only at 20 to 25% capacity across all the dams. So we still have a long way to go. So from a water storage angle um, – an opportunity to get a a, a big uh, once-off sort of an event like what we hoped would be the cyclone yesterday, that would have been incredible to to fill things right up, but that hasn't happened. So we're still running into winter time. It's sort of, it's not as critical. The stock don't draw as much. And if you can just get your average rain, you can make your way through, but then the pressure will come on again at that back end of the season if we don't get some big runoff events. So it certainly hasn't gone away. It's just, um, it, it naturally becomes less of an issue during winter just because of of, of just traditional events. But, yeah, we uh, still would love to see the big runoff events. Yeah, some steady gains would be good.
2: Valley farmer Annalisa Newman speaking to Daniel Mercer. And uh, like many farmers, Annalisa's uh, also sparing a thought for producers in the northern wheat belt who copped a lot of that damage over the weekend, just saying and acknowledging that's obviously the last thing they needed at this time of year when you're trying to get the seeding done. But as you heard from Daniel Corrick from Alanooga, just sort of southeast of Geraldton, earlier in the hour, it's not going to get in his way. He is um, going to put aside some of those clean-up jobs, and there are quite a few at his place, and other farmers in that area. He's going to put those to one side, just do what he needs to do, and then get on with the seeding. Speaking of the rain, I'll go through those details for you. You'll hear all the readings, five mils and over, from around Western Australia uh, just after news headlines at half past 12. But a quick look through now. Uh, it's a different story than the rainfall read yesterday, so it's really dropped away. But the central west, 78 there at Gutha West, 51 at Macalindon in the southwest of the state. These are sort of the bigger ones. And that's really it. But obviously, as you've heard over the last couple of days, some of the rain gauges just blew away. So it's um, difficult to get a really accurate rainfall reading, especially over the weekend with... um, Well, some people can't find their rain gauge anymore. 26 past 12, news headlines not far away, off to the Bureau and then going through those rainfall readings in detail for you. First, though, you are heading north to the Kimberley's Ord Irrigation Scheme now just to check on the cotton crop, which was planted a few months ago now, but it is up, established, and it is looking really good. The crop continues to expand across the region with more than a 1,000 hectares in the ground this time round. Kununurra farmer Fritz Bolton has planted 35 hectares at Oasis Farms this year, and he likes what he sees.
5: The conditions for cotton are perfect. We've got long days, it's hot, lots of sunshine, we've got lots of water. This is like a racehorse and it wants to bolt and it wants to grow vegetative material. And we need to just balance that up and manage it so that so that it grows a big enough bush, but we also need to stress it the right amount so that it wants to reproduce. Um, if we just let it grow and lost control of it, this stuff would be two meters tall green and thinking it's never going to die it's never going to need to reproduce and it's a really good problem to have so one of the things that we're really excited about in regards to cotton is that it's just so suited to this environment and that's fundamentally something that we've been looking for with other crops we've grown in the past um but i think this one this one is a particularly good at it
8: can you set targets for yield? Is it too early to do that?
5: Yeah, I think it's too early to set targets for yields. Um, one of the things I will say is, is I'm very confident that we'll have very, very good quality because we are not limited by water and we, we generally in August we shouldn't have any rain. Um, the yield will be up or down, but that quality is pretty much assured. That's something that, I, that I'm that i banking on.
8: And of course, when there's good quality, obviously that translates to, to good price as well.
5: Um, good price and also the product is in demand so it makes it easier to sell so people will start to learn that the product that comes out of the ord is of a superior quality and they will try not to pay more for it but they will always try and target this cotton first in their buying regime and i think that's that in itself is, is really important, especially in a low-priced year. We'll be able to move our cotton, and that's really important.
8: In the last few years, there's been more and more growers sort of attracted to cotton, especially a couple of Queensland growers have come across. Is that sort of, I guess, optimism around northern cotton still quite buoyant and, and high, Fritz?
5: Yeah, I think there's a bit more than last year. People are pretty excited about it. And, um, we've got the real advantage over other growing areas that it rains here, Consistently and, and that actually makes it makes it really hard to get, to grow the crop in a timely manner. And we really welcome these new growers to come here and, and grow cotton with us.
2: That is Cunanara farmer Fritz Spolton from Oasis Farms and speaking to Courtney Fowler. Those cotton crops around the order are expected to be ready for picking or well, sometime between late July and August. This is the Country Hour. It is half past twelve. Time for an update from the newsroom now. And with the very latest, here's Jonathan Hopper.
9: Good afternoon, Belinda. A convicted rapist found guilty of killing missing WA teenager Hayley Dodd more than two decades ago has been sentenced to 18 years jail. 65-year-old Francis Walk was found guilty by a Supreme Court jury of killing the 17-year-old who was last seen alive in July 1999. It's the second time Walk has been jailed for the teenager's death. Walk will have to serve 16 years Years before he can be released on parole, but that won't happen, and he will serve the full term if he does not disclose the location of Ms. Dodd's remains. The WA Premier has travelled to the state's Midwest Coast to view the destruction caused by Tropical Cyclone Saroja, likening it to a war zone. About 70% of Cal buildings were damaged or destroyed when the cyclone made landfall on Sunday night. And the Victorian Government says it hopes to increase the limit on sporting ground capacity to 100%, but can't commit to weather. That will happen before the Anzac Day match at the MCG. Under current restrictions, stadiums in Victoria are capped at 75% capacity. Thanks, Belinda.
2: Jonathan, thank you so much for that update. It is 29 to 1. And just an update for you. As I was mentioning just a few moments ago, really keen to hear from the state's main grain handler, the CBH group, about the situation at the Geraldton Port. Already CBH having that backlog of Ships and really adding to the cost, the demurrage cost, was at 30,000 US per day per ship, those demurrage costs. So the sooner you can move those ships, the better. So really keen to hear from the CBH group about uh, what what is the plan, I guess, in terms of trying to keep those ships moving. But an update from... Midwest Ports, a press release that's just come out in the last, well, 10 minutes or so. And it says, I'm just reading off the email on my phone, it says, the damage sustained by Cyclone Saroja throughout the Midwest is substantial and many in our region have been very seriously affected, in particular the Kalbarri and Northampton communities, as you know. It says, here in Geraldton, Midwest Ports Authority encountered 120 kilometre winds at the Geraldton Port, storm surge and heavy rainfall. Some damage is evident, however, nothing landslide that will impact our operations once power is restored. Hydrographic surveys have commenced to ensure the harbour and channel are free of obstructions, such as rock debris or sand displacement. It says once power is re-established, it's going to conduct an operational assessment and resume shipping when it is safe to do so. The Midwest Port says it remains in contact with all of the customers and it's assuring the community that it's doing everything it can to return the port to normal operations. A little bit of an assessment to go before that's up and running by the sounds of things though. That is the latest from the Midwest Ports, that situation at Geraldton. This is the Country Hour 27 to 1 and off to the Bureau of Meteorology in just a moment. right across Western Australia. You are tuned to The Country Hour, 26 to 1. It's off to the Bureau of Meteorology to catch up with Noel Pusey. And Noel, do you want to start in northern and eastern parts today?
10: Uh, yeah, OK. There's uh, North Kimberley, there's a little bit of a thunderstorm to be up uh, along the uh, northwest Kimberley coast there this afternoon and uh, this evening, and uh, for the next few days as well. There's just a chance of that, but... Um, Otherwise, fairly dry through much of the north part, uh, to, through the north there. But uh, if we head a little bit further to the west, of the, to the Pilbara, there's uh, some shower and thunderstorm activity over central and southern parts there. Today, um, some slow-moving storms, so there could be some, some moderate falls out of those uh, through the afternoon, if you're to be un- under one of those. Uh, and mid-level clouds streaming down from that area towards uh, South Australia at the moment through the northeast Gascoyne and the uh, southern interior and um, as far as to nuclear there as well, one one or two uh, sort of chance of storms out of that as well from mid-level cloud. But again, very light in the way it falls, I think, uh, out of that uh, for the next day or two before it breaks up and moves a little bit further to the east. But the stuff over the, um, the Pilbara into the northeast Gascon may linger for the next day or two as well. But uh, generally on a clearing trend after that. But, uh, further in the south, it's um, it's much quieter than it has been for the last few days. Uh, high pressure ridge starting to develop south of the state. Uh, the main high is still to the southwest. Um, fresh southwesterly winds along the south coast. With some strong wind warnings current there today. Uh, some shower activity in near southern coastal parts, and there have been one to two showers up the west coast as well this morning. But majority of those uh, showers are now staying offshore and uh, some just partly cloudy conditions over the uh, west and south of the south 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 west land division near coastal parts there uh for the next day or so uh winds tend to move around a little bit more to the east for the next day or two over the southern half as that high starts to move. South of the state, it's not particularly strong, uh, so not uh, super super strong as far as easterly winds go. But uh, dry conditions and uh, sunny by uh, sort of Wednesday into Thursday, and by Friday, um, quite dry conditions throughout the southern half. Again, just one or two showers lingering near the south coast uh, for the the outlook period, and perhaps even if the Yorke Coast on on sort of Thursday, maybe Friday morning. Otherwise. Uh, yeah, it'll it'll be dry and hopefully um, not too much in the way of weather to um, to hinder any sort of clean up after the uh, passage of Saraje through there yesterday.
2: Yeah, that'll be handy. There's a bit of work to be done, obviously, by the the news coming through and the photos et cetera, that we're seeing. Uh, Noel, warnings this afternoon. Is there anything about?
10: Just the uh, coastal wind warnings on that southern coast. I was uh, speaking about before, and there's also a coastal waters wind warnings for the uh, the uh, the Coral Coast and. Uh, the coast to the north of Calberry uh, as well today uh, in the uh, sort of southerly sea breeze out there this afternoon. So uh, not uh, too much in the way of warnings to, to worry people either.
2: All right. Thank you so much, Noel. It is 23 to 1. Checking the rainfall figures now. This is the last 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning and just keeping an eye on five mils and over. In the Peelborough, Chilla Plains, 8, Caratha Aero, 6, Mount Florence, 15, Parabadu Aero, 8 and Red Hill, 17. In the Gascoyne-Mikathara Airport, 5. Minina had 6. The Goldfields, Norseman Aero, 10. And Weibo, 5. That's it for northern and eastern parts. Moving into the southwest land division now. And the central west, Bajangara Research Station, 6. Gutha West, 78. Durian Bay, 7. Carrara, 6. Lancelin Defence, 10. Nabawar, 43. But that was over four days. Nambung Station 5, Strawberry 5 and Tabletop also 5. In the lower west, Gingin West 6, Lancelin 11, Rotnest Island 6, Wanneroo 16 over 4 days and Woodridge Estate 7. Then into the southwest, up 6, Margaret River 6, Macalinden 51, Northcliff 7, Shannon 5 and Warner Glen 5. Southern Coastal Region, Albany 5, Albany Airport 10, Chain Beach 9, Chillin' Up 3, Snuckin, in. Dalyut Park 6, Denbarka 5, Denmark 10 and at another spot in Denmark 9, Air and Air 6, Esperance 12, Esperance Aero 8, King River 10, Many Peak 7, Mount Howick 5, Oakmarsh Farm 9, Ongarup 27 over three days. Pleasant Valley 9, Tamar 10, Talena down 6 and Windrush 6. And in the central wheat belt, Gib Rock had 8 and Nungaran had 5 in the gauge and that's a wrap of the rainfall right across Western Australia.
11: You're part of the Country Hour with Belinda Varaschetti on ABC Local Radio WA.
2: Off to Mouchet, just before the news that one, as I mentioned earlier, a bit unusual with the road closures today at Mouchet. So there was a lot more sheep sort of scheduled for sale, but there were about 3,000 head withdrawn from the sale because obviously the road closures and you just couldn't get through. John Testro going through the yarding and the prices just before the news at one. First up though is supermarket giant Woolworths has confirmed it signed a new contract with Lactalis, the owner of Harvey Fresh, to process the company's home brand milk in WA. Now this marks the end of the supermarket giant's existing contract with Browns, with the new five year agreement set to come into effect from January the 1st Next year. Now, the ABC understands that Browns has since offered its producers a variable month by month increase per litre at the farm gate. And it's a move that industry commentators are saying is aimed at keeping existing suppliers in its tent. Dairy industry analyst Steve Hosson says it means hotter competition between processors in the short term, but the roller coaster ride will continue over the long term?
12: Well, what it's going to mean is that there's a scramble for milk that had been starting. I think it'll be on now for the next six months. The major manufacturers have good markets, good export markets, reasonable domestic markets, so they want the milk, and this has is, this is just essentially rattled the cage. So I suspect we're going to get multiple rounds of small price rises in the next six months or the next year.
13: Uh, You mentioned that there's a bit of a scramble on for milk. Are you saying that it's unlikely that Harvey Fresh has the milk it needs to be able to fulfil that Woolies contract without securing farmers from Browns and, and Bega?
12: Yes, that's true, because the size of that contract is so large that unless they they will not secure it out of their existing suppliers. It's too big a step up, over 10%. They, will, they are looking at other companies' suppliers and the other companies are looking to see what they can do to hold their suppliers. And it all depends a bit on who's in contract and who's not and how that's going to play out.
13: Because uh, my understanding is that Browns has come out and offered variable rate price increases for its suppliers until December
12: not surprised at all. I've not seen those price increases, but that will be the first round of a number of small price increases to come, essentially as the producers chase money, because they're going to be chased by the, by the, by the processors. and the only thing they really respect out of processes, apart from some of the work they're doing, which has been good, uh, is money, and money will drive it. So it's just the way it's going to be for the next six months or a year.
13: So I'm hearing between variable price increases of between 5 cents a litre and 1 cent a litre, depending on which month. Is that enough?
12: Uh, What normally happens, Jess, is the answer to that is no, it isn't. What normally happens in the first year of a price increase, farmers don't increase their volumes. They essentially just pocket the money. And I suspect it won't be a solution in the second year because what we've got now is the alternative use of those animals and the land is just so much better. $6 a kilo for a cull cow plus a bit. Three years ago it was $3. What that boils down to is a big, a big cull cow, $2,000 versus $1,000. The alternative use of that land and, and that production system you've got has beef with a big B in front of it, not just dairy with a big D in front of it.
13: So... The prices in the sale yards right now aren't just affecting beef producers. What you're saying is that it's such a lucrative market at the moment that that's more appealing than reinvesting to grow your herd and, and increase your milk production.
12: Absolutely, yep, absolutely. Uh, I reinvest in grow my herd, grow it rapidly. Unless it really suits me, what do I do? I oversupply the state in milk. When it's oversupplied in milk, we have this scramble down instead of a scramble up. So, am I best to keep my milk much the same and grow the beef side of my enterprise? And I suspect 80% of people have decided that the latter is better. Than growing the milk side of their industry of their enterprise it just depends on whether they've built a new dairy or something like that. But if they haven't recently, they will focus as much on the beef side as the dairy side. So it will take a lot of money to flip the attitude that's in the dairy farmers' minds.
13: So, crystal ball, will this short-term flurry of competition between Browns and uh, Lactalis translate into a longer-term? benefit for industry
12: no i don't believe so it's just rolling around short price goes up oversupply price goes down the fundamental stability required in the industry is not there so yeah it'll help the people who grab the extra money and good on them but it is not long-term stability jess
13: Yeah. so cynics will say that browns is basically offering these price increases to keep uh, its suppliers out of the harvey fresh tent is that your take
12: Well, everyone is going to try to keep their supplies in their own tent. Uh, You can't run a milk factory if you're short of milk. So that's essentially what they... I I don't think they care much about the other person's tent, but they care an awful lot about their own.
2: Dairy industry analyst Stephen Hosson with Jessica Hayes. So what do farmers think about all of this? Well, WA Farmers Dairy Section President Ian Noakes says the significance of the contract change from Browns to Lactalis is eclipsed by the short-term price opportunities that will come between now and
14: December. It's like shuffling the deck chairs on the Titanic, if you ask me. I mean, who cares who's got the contract? What we care about is that it's done at a reasonable price. And uh, we know there's home brand milk, it's, um, they're cut-price milk, so the price is probably not going to be anywhere near high enough regardless of who's got it
13: so what does this all mean then do you think for industry at this point
14: uh it doesn't mean a lot i think what's more relevant to the industry is that browns have come out and are obviously are confident in their business model without the home brand milk which is a, that's a real positive i think is that they can maintain and increase their price and uh, and missing out on the white milk market but that is one of the major concerns that the industry has Australia wide. Is that, you know, a lot of farmers' core business the outside of the manufacturing areas of Tasmania and Victoria is supplying the local market. And we're not getting the premiums out of the local market that we should be for producing a product 365 days a year that's of high quality. And we're not getting paid enough for that because the, one of the main reasons for that is because we've got these home brand. You know, with Coles bringing in the dollar a litre milk, it's taken all the profitability out of the white milk market.
13: Are you hopeful that, uh, you know, from an industry standpoint, this will start the conversation about critical volume versus returns for farmers?
14: Yeah, hopefully it will. I mean, we've been a bit disappointed that since the election um, there's been no further action on a five-year plan for the dairy industry, which was basically was agreed that we would come up. And that would happen, uh, and it seems to... And that was the 19th of January, so three months later we sort of haven't progressed any further, which is pretty disappointing to me, that um, if if there's genuine intent from players within the industry to, to resolve issues, then then it's been pretty slow off the mark.
2: WA Farmers Dairy Section President Ian Noakes with Jessica Hayes. Woolworth says Harvey Fresh was chosen based on a range of factors including sustainable packing initiatives and long-term improvement plans. The company also says because the existing partnership with Browns will continue until January, it'll provide an extended period for the business to prepare for that transition. This is the Country Hour, and it is 13 to 1. Lewin Coast, the aquaculture arm of Andrew Forrest's Harvest Road Group, is... Pretty excited with the news that it's the first brand in Australia to achieve carbon neutral certification for its products. The group grows aquoia, rock oysters and mussels from Carnarvon to Albany. And if you're wondering about aquoia, they are normally grown to culture pearls. But in this case, Lewin Coast is growing them for food. The company's general manager of aquaculture is Dr Justin Welsh, who says it was a long, an exciting process to reach this level of certification.
15: The first step was to identify our total carbon footprint as a business. So that was looking at everything from how our operations emit carbon all the way through to how we transport our product to our customers. From there, one of the really exciting elements for us was that shellfish are actually natural carbon sinks. So they take carbon and bind it into their shells. So that actually let us offset a bit of the carbon we were producing. And then the balance we with the balance, we actually managed to offset that with fantastic projects that help prevent deforestation of the Amazon, as well as supporting a biodiversity project in Australia.
8: So the, the shellfish themselves are, are carbon sinks. How does that work?
15: Yeah, so the shell of our rock oysters and our aquaria is actually made out of something called calcium carbonate. Um, And that calcium carbonate pulls carbon dioxide out of the oceans and binds it into their shell. So that helps to reduce the amount of carbon dioxide in the oceans, which can then buffer more carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere.
8: Where are you growing um, these animals currently?
15: So Albany is definitely the hub of our operations. It's a large farm that's growing quickly, um, producing rock oysters and aqua. And part of that, we have a network stretching all the way up to Carnarvon. So Carnarvon is a really exciting opportunity for us as well, where we are moving to the second stage of a trial we started almost three years ago now, where we've seen fantastic opportunities for an oyster nursery and potentially grow up in the future. Garden Island as well, just south of Perth, is another fantastic opportunity for us, where our aqua flourish in the really clean waters around Garden Island.
8: The akoya that's normally grown for pearl raising. But are you growing pearls or meat?
15: No, so um, our business is really focused on bringing fantastic West Australian produce to the world. Um, and so we focus really hard on the wonderful eating qualities of the Akoya. Um, and that's meant we've just changed the way we approach their production completely. So instead of using pearl panels um, and growing them to about four years old before they're harvested for pearls, we actually grow them to only about a year old and grow them uh, in a really similar way that we grow mussels. And
8: then do they taste the sim- similar to, to normal... Oysters, rock oysters?
15: Akoya are a really unique flavour experience. So their taste profile changes completely depending if you have them raw or you cook them. But they taste sort of like a hybrid between a mussel, an oyster and a
12: scallop.
8: With your carbon neutral status, is this a case of offsetting uh, aquaculture processes that do create a lot of carbon?
12: So
15: aquaculture is inherently sustainable. Um, Of course, there are some sources of carbon generation in that we run vessels um, to harvest our products. But because our shellfish, everything is very efficient that we do, our shellfish find carbon in their own right. So the carbon footprint of aquaculture is actually quite small, especially our business. But what we're really focused on through everything we do in aquaculture is the sustainability of it. So our shellfish create wonderful habitats in the marine environment. They help purify environments to help seagrass flourish. And this, is, this carbon neutrality is just another way that we're really helping to support and promote our message of sustainability. So it's much more than, than just the sticker on the box. For us, it's really delivering on our promise of creating a real sustainable and long-term industry.
2: Coast General Manager of Aquaculture, Dr Justin Welsh, speaking to Lucinda Jose. Eight minutes to one. This just in from the state's main grain handler, the CBH Group, in regards to the impact on operations in the wake of... TC Siroja in particular around the Geraldton Port. And this from the CBH's Chief Operations Officer, Ben McNamara. First of all, he says just extending the sympathy and support to those communities, including growers who've sustained considerable damage from TC Saroja. Uh, All the CBH team members are safe. There's no reported injuries at this stage. Uh, CBH is assessing the network across the Geraldton and Quinana North zones just to determine the full extent of the damage and commence repairs where safe to do so. The initial assessments are showing that the group has sustained significant damage to some of its sites in the Geraldton zone. So tarps have been lost from several open bulkheads and some roof structures on fixed storage facilities have been damaged, resulting in exposure of grain to the rain. And the impact of grain quality is yet to be qualified, quantified. Um, at the moment, CBH is unable to use several rail lines and some key road networks are restricted, reducing its ability to move grain to port. And this, of course, will further impact the shipping schedule and export program from the Geraldton port. Now, the full implication of operations and financial impact of Cyclone siroja are yet to be determined and quantified. But CBH says it's working with communities and relevant authorities to resume operational activities as soon as safe to do so. And it will be keeping its growers and customers updated on the impacts to services. Hopefully more detail on that tomorrow from the CBH group. No one was available to talk to you today. Hopefully uh, that'll be a different story tomorrow. On the Country Hour, seven minutes to one, and some resources news for you now. And drilling companies searching for the next big... Mineral Discovery are stocking up on expensive new equipment to meet the increasing demand for exploration here in WA. Kalgoorlie-based company Top Drill has just taken delivery of its 25th drill rig and is spending another $4 million building another one. Top Drill's Managing Director Tim Topham is reluctant to use the word boom but says strong demand in the industry justifies the cost of expanding the company's fleet.
1: It's a buoyant market. I'm happy to use up B word. Drilling are still a saturated market. We're seeing the way that our business is trying to develop is to more longer-term, large-volume contracts, which underpin our business to get away from cyclical expiration work. The continued success from the uh, the market conditions, spending money on ground allows for more finds. We've been involved in a really successful new find in the Pilbara. Company called De Grey Mining. They currently have seven of our machines working round the clock.
16: I'm speaking to Tim Topham. He's the managing director of Top Drill in Kalgoorlie. And they're expanding their drilling fleet to 25 rigs, uh, soon to be 26. And that comes as other big drilling companies like DDH-1. They're expanding with an additional 15 rigs this year. They're going to have a fleet of 103 by the end of the first half. Another company, Dynamic Drill and Blast, they're acquiring another three rigs this year to take their fleet to 16. So, Tim, is it getting harder to actually find these rigs or get them built?
1: Rig packages are about $4 million to put on the road. So uh, putting together a rig package is a 6- to 12-month exercise. And, uh, yes, none of our type of equipment is off the shelf or available on a short notice. Do
16: you find yourself competing with all, all the other drilling companies out there, I guess, for, for that everyone wants to have more rigs out in the bush, don't they?
1: We're finding that there's a significant challenges with labour and equipment, that we're actually finding that quite few of our competitors are investing in technology or, or new equipment, and that as long as you plan, access to the right equipment is, is, is
16: easy. Kalgoorlie's been the, the home of drilling in Australia for, for decades, really, now... Uh, how do you think uh, it'll be able to sustain uh, more, more rigs in the field around this sort of region?
1: It's very easy to be operating in this buoyant market in such a great place.
2: Tim Topham, Managing Director of Kalgoorlie-based drilling company Top Drill, speaking to Jared Lucas. And Top Drill is due to take delivery of the company's 26th drill rig next month, which is a long way from the single drill rig and two employees it started with back in 2006. Three to one. Off to Mushe now for the results of the sheep market. 4,069 sheep and lambs were penned for sale and there were over 3,000 withdrawals due to all the road closures in the wake of XTC siroja So, John Testro, the numbers were light. What was the quality like?
11: Quality of the trade lambs uh, improved significantly and produced a uh, $10 rise. The lighter 17 to 20 kilos gained $5 on the back of strong uh, feedlot competition. Prime hoggets and mutton remained generally firm with medium weight boners up by $5. But to run through the uh, various types, and in particular the land market, we'll start with that. The 0 to 12 kilos, uh, pretty firm at $40 to $70 to graziers. 13 to 16 kilos again to graziers mainly at 80 to 126 and remained firm. 17 to 20 kilos as I said strong feedlot competition on these types uh, they sold from 129 to 153 up by $5 at near 750 cents a kilo carcass weight the 21 to 22 kilos uh, good quality lambs here 150 to 179 up $10 at near 760 cents and the best pennings today in the lamb market were the 23 kilo plus in particular the 24s and they sold from 175 to 210, another gain of ten dollars, and a carcass price at very close to eight dollars a kilo. Ram lambs they sold from 134 to 149, remained firm, as did the hoggets at 141 to 185, probably at near 610 a, a kilo carcass weight on those. In the uh, mutton market, we saw best heavy weathers at 198 to 209, and we'll run through the U section. The medium weight bonus, 22 to 24 kilos, they sold from 110 to 142, up by $5. The 25 to 30 kilos, 150 to 185, pretty firm. And the 30 plus at 176 to 200, again firm at near 580 cents a kilo carcass weight. Pretty good market overall. I'm John Testro for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service and the ABC. Good afternoon.
2: Good afternoon to you, John. Thank you so much for going through that the yarding and the prices at Moucher's sheep market today. sixty nine sheep and lambs penned for sale. Time for the news, 1 o'clock.
0: You've been
13: listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.